The mob hammered against the barricaded gate of Cologne Cathedral from outside. Only this gate was still standing between the angry crowd outside and the Archbishop of Cologne, Anno II, who had sought refuge inside. The crowd was raging. It had occupied the bishop's palace and the cathedral courtyard to the south of the cathedral and was also hammering incessantly against the gate at the north gate of the city wall. There seemed to be no way out of the building. Encircled here in the northeast corner of the city, in the year 1074 of the Lord, Anno was trapped and awaited his fate. And with that, welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne today's western Germany that is over 2,000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. It can therefore be seen as quite a microcosm of European history. In this podcast, you can listen as the city grows from the Romans up until our present time. Wow, that was a furious start to the episode. One of the most famous scenes in the medieval history of Cologne. In 1074, seemingly out of nowhere, the people of Cologne rose up against the archbishop and dared to revolt. Whether this is quite true and how it came about at all, because after all, Anno had already almost 20 years of city rule behind him, you will learn in this episode. Have fun. Welcome back. Guys, you don't know how much I was looking forward to this episode. The uprising against Archbishop Anno II in April 1074. I don't even know where to start, but I have to try somewhere, so let's get started. That we know comparatively well about the events of that time, which took place in the days from April 24th to April 26th, we owe to the already known Lampert of Hersfeld in his annual chronicles, which the priest is said to have written about four years after the event, so in the year 1078 or maybe 1079. It can even be assumed that Lampert himself was on site as a contemporary witness in the aftermath of the events in Cologne and made inquiries. Because his report is very extensive and detailed compared to other events of that time. During my studies at university, I also had to translate some annals of different authors in prose seminars in uh, medieval studies. Often the entries are always very short and sober. Like, for example, when an important person died, then sometimes texts often simply say in Latin, quote, Rabanus Moguntia Kensis Archiepiscopus Obiit Cui Carlus Succesit, end quote. Translated, that means, the Archbishop of Mainz, Rabanus, died and was succeeded by Charles. Not exactly literally sophisticated, I know, and this is the text entry for the year 856, which Lampert himself wrote down in the same work, his Annals. Well, Lampert didn't live in the 9th century either, but as I said, that was all he could find out and write down for that year. Lampert had probably only written the entries 
from the year 1040 onwards himself, the previous events he had certainly copied from an already existing annual chronicle that we don't know about anymore. I therefore find it all the nicer that we have here, for the first time in a long time, a detailed historical source again. Therefore, small spoiler, we will exploit this mercilessly. Beforehand, however, it should be said, Lampert's reports are not quite easy to interpret, but let's give it a try. The year 1074 had actually started well for Anno. His former student, former prisoner, and now ruler of the Holy Roman Empire, Henry IV, was knee-deep in a military conflict with Saxon rebellious nobles. Members of Anno's family, his nephew Burkhard, for example, Bishop of Halberstadt, and his brother Werner, Archbishop of Magdeburg, all in Saxon territory, were also on the side of the rebels against Henry IV. However, Anno himself took a mediating position, not wanting to step on the toes of either his relatives or his liege lord and former prisoner Henry IV. In January 1074, Anno travelled to Corvai in Saxony to appease the rebels on behalf of Henry IV. But this was not successful. It would perhaps be interesting to know how Lampert himself assessed Anno II and Henry IV, both whom he knew personally. Because we should be fully clear about one thing here, as already mentioned. Lampert does not write neutrally. He clearly took sides here, and you will know what I mean. It would hardly be an exaggeration to say that Lampert absolutely could not stand Henry IV. With Anno, on the other hand, the judgment is a bit more sophisticated. Lampert probably was a pupil of Anno during his time at the Bamberg Cathedral School. Lampert really tries everything to make Anno look positive, as someone who personally confronts the work of the devil. But even Lampert can't always avoid criticizing Anno at one point or another during the events of 1074. But we will soon find all that out when we take a closer look at his written accounts. What did Lampert think of the Cologne mob that dared to revolt against Anno? Not very much. We'll soon find out. What did Lampert write that explicitly triggered the revolt in Cologne? For the year 1074, he reports the following with regard to Cologne. Quote, the archbishop celebrated the Easter feast in Cologne. With him was the bishop of Münster, whom he had invited as his trusted friend to share in the joys of the high feast. End quote. So far, so good. Anno celebrated Easter with Bishop Frederick I of Münster in 1074. Easter fell on April the 20th. So far, no conflict was foreseeable in the city. Nevertheless, even after almost 20 years in Cologne, as the supreme city ruler, Anno was not popular with everyone in the city. On the contrary. 
some people were completely hostile to him. Anno had made himself particularly unpopular with the merchants as he had claimed a not inconsiderable piece of building land directly close to the Rhine with the church of St. Maria at Grados to the east of Cologne Cathedral, building land that the merchants would actually have much preferred to use for warehouses, stores and docks. The fact that Anno's predecessor had actually laid the foundation stone for the church of St. Maria at Grados here close to the Rhine River is another matter, though. Then there were also personal features that Cologne citizens really didn't like about Anno. The Cologne shepherd was slim and slender. Unlike many priests at that time, Anno lived a strictly ascetic life, if I pronounced that correctly. Anno had forcibly converted the abbey of the monastery of St. Pantaleon against the will of the monks there, according to his own monastic reform model with stricter rules. The monks there, mostly men from wealthy Cologne families, were not at all enthusiastic about this. They did not want to say goodbye to the previous luxurious and pleasant lifestyle in the abbey, so they had to go and unreplace the monks there with his own loyal monks he got from somewhere else, I guess. Anno's foreign origin from Altsteuslingen, a village in Swabia, in the eyes of the Cologne population and his low noble origin did the rest. Cologne citizens were alienated with this South German oddity. A general dissatisfaction was therefore already given, but then the situation in the city really escalated directly after Easter 1074. Lampert wrote about this. Quote, when the Easter days were almost over and the Bishop of Münster was about to leave, the Archbishop's household servants were ordered to procure a suitable ship for his journey. After a thorough inspection of all the ships, they seized one that belonged to a very rich merchant and seemed suitable for this purpose. They had the goods it was carrying removed and ordered it to be repaired immediately for the archbishop's service. When the servants, or the servants of the merchant ship, who had to guard the ship, refused to do so, they, so the archbishop's servants, threatened violence if they did not carry out their orders immediately. The servants, the merchant servants, ran to the owner of the ship and reported the incident and asked what they should do. End quote. What we hear here sounded outrageous indeed. Imagine you had a company and the truck was already packed with goods that you wanted to drive to the customer the next day and someone comes along and says, no, you're not doing that. Give me that truck, hand it over, empty all your goods from your truck, please. Or not, not, not saying please, just give it to me. But we are here in pre-modern times. The Archbishop of Cologne was the supreme city lord. And we do not know exactly about the legal status of the owner of the Cologne merchant ship. Was he, the merchant, an unfree or a bondman? If so, what Anno demanded of him was even perfectly in order. An unfree man had to provide transportation to his liege lord if this was demanded, as in this case. 
then the merchant, as much as this situation annoyed him, would have been obliged to hand over the ship to his lord. So as I said, as unfair as this sounds to our ears nowadays, Anno acted maybe, we don't know for sure, in a completely legal way. Well, they had a difference of opinion, the merchant and the archbishop, but that could have been clarified. However, it did not come to that, because especially the son of the merchant who owned that ship that was being confiscated, neither from him nor from his father, we learn the name, resisted against the archbishop's servants. Lampert reports about the merchant who owned the ship, quote, he had an adult son who was distinguished by his boldness as well as his physical strength and who was extremely popular with the wealthy people of the city because of his kinship and his merits. He ran with his servants and with young people from the city, as many as he could gather in all haste to his assistance, in flying haste to the ship and chased away by force the servants of the archbishop, who stubbornly insisted on the seizure of the ship. When the city bailiff then approached to intervene and provoke the new scuffle, he also repelled this one with the same intrepidity and chased him away. End quote. So now the ship that was being confiscated was back in the possession of the merchant, thanks to his own son. The small band of archbishop's servants had been chased away by force. The city bailiff, sent by the archbishop then, who was responsible for public order within the city of Cologne for Anno, had also failed. Both sides did not really try to calm down the situation or to find a compromise. Quite the opposite. Spurred on by his success, the merchant's son gathered more followers and faithful around him. All people in Cologne were under the rule of the archbishop whether as unfree, semi-free, or free. But all this in relation to the defense of the city. However, to seize a ship just to allow the best mate of the archbishop a more pleasant journey home to Münster was, in the eyes of some of the merchants, a transgression of this conception of the law described earlier. Not only the angry merchant with his son and followers saw it that way, even Lampert himself saw this and even criticized his presumed mentor Anno in his way of acting, which is quite remarkable, but still, you will see, Lampert will always stay on Anno's side. Let's hear Lampert again. Quote, when the archbishop was informed that a serious riot was raging in the city, he immediately sent out his men to calm the popular uprising. And full of wrath, he threatened to chastise the rebellious lads with the deserved punishment at the next court session. He was distinguished by virtues of every kind and by often proven righteousness in matters of the kingdom and the church of God. But with so many merits, a flaw appeared like a small birthmark on a beautiful body. When his anger flared up, he could not restrain his tongue but hurled at everyone, regardless of the person, vile words, and the most biting insults. Then, when he had tamed his rage a little, he re 
reproached himself violently for it. End quote. So, Lampert did not see a just punishment as a motive in Anna's reaction, but simply strove for revenge. But as you listened, he really tries everything to make Anna look like a good person. First, this dispute was about property. Now it was also about honor. The archbishop felt insulted in his claim to power. The merchant family saw their honor as merchants threatened. At that time, a reduction of honor meant, by implication, a reduction of previously exercised freedoms. Here the merchants allegedly invoked an old right from the time of the rule of the Carolingian emperor Louis the Pious from the 9th century, who said that ships intended for long-distance trade were not allowed to be seized. We are already 250 years advanced in time since Louis the Pious here in 1074, but apparently this old right from Carolingian times for the merchants still had enough weight that it was invoked and people remembered it. Not only that, Anno even threatened them with retribution. Feudal lord or not, confronted with the restriction of their rights and freedoms, and adding to that the threat of violence and a possible endangerment of physical integrity, especially the young merchant's son and his rebels agreed, Anno could not deal with the honorable citizens of Cologne like that. Unfortunately, we know little about the mostly, probably mostly, young male insurgents whom Lampert negatively titled as, quote, raised from youth in the pleasures of city life, end quote. As said, we do not even know the name of their leader, the merchant's son. Anno, in turn, completely misjudged the situation. He was not aware of the seriousness of the situation into which he had maneuvered himself in those late April days. Adding to that, Anno was already hated in the city for his nepotism. Nepotism was standard thing in the Middle Ages, as it might be un until today, but Anno did not really even try to hide it that he, he was doing it. And this had already caused some uprisings in cities, so Anno should have been aware of the danger, but no, he was not. Here only a small outline about Anno's nepotism and what consequences it sometimes had. During his time as the regent and even afterwards as a powerful imperial prince, Anno naturally acted as a family promoter in the empire, as already mentioned. Or in other words, nepotism. Which was normal, as I said, but with him it was really obvious. Burkhardt, his nephew, already mentioned before, Anno made him the Bishop of Halberstadt in today's Saxony-Anhalt in 1059, who was now an opponent of Henry IV in those days of 1074. Brother Werner became Archbishop of Magdeburg through Anno's massive political efforts and pressure in 1063 during the time when Anno held Henry IV captive and acted as regent of the entire empire. Archbishop Werner, after 1074, more precisely in the year 1078, would be deprived of his power in the struggle against Henry IV and even be assassinated. Utah, Anno's niece, became abbess of the monastery of St. Cecilia, which we already mentioned a lot in this podcast. 
Another man named Conrad, a nephew of Anno, fared worst. First, Conrad was the Cologne Cathedral Provost under Anno, and then, through Anno's intrigues, became even the Archbishop of Trier in 1066. Without consultation with Henry IV, let alone with the nobility and clergy of the city of Trier, no, Anno just said, this is the new Archbishop, deal with it. With the investiture of Conrad, three of six archbishoprics of the empire would have been in the hands of this Altsteuslinger family, Anno's family. But here comes what I meant, that Anno could know what might happen to a family member or himself when he had not his city population on his own side. Because even before Conrad arrived in Trier, a delegation of Trier citizens under the command of the Trier city bailiff intercepted him at Bitburg, halfway between Cologne and Trier. And yes, that Bitburg which produces the beer. No advertising, of course, it just came into my mind. The Bishop of Speyer, who accompanied Conrad to Trier, was released. They did him no harm, he was fine. Conrad, on the other hand, was not quite so lucky. Two weeks living in a dungeon followed, starving the poor fellow nearly to death. If that was not enough, on June the 1st, 1066, Conrad was thrown from a mountain ledge, not once, but three times. But the nephew of Anno was still alive. Well, I believe he was in a lot of pain, but he was still merely alive. So it was decided to behead him on the spot. I'm an expert on this incident or about this method, but if they had done that to make it look like an accident, after all, it was a bit of a sacrilege to kill an archbishop. I'm afraid... Uh, I don't know, but they they really failed. It was really pretty poorly executed, in my opinion. If that was not enough, the murderers committed another sacrilege by leaving the decapitated body unburied. They just left him on the spot. Only after 30 days did peasants from a nearby village accidentally find Conrad's body and saw to it that it was probably buried later in a monastery in Verdun. To cut a long story short, Anno knew that even a chief shepherd, one was not always completely immune to earthly dangers in this world. Nevertheless, the Archbishop of Cologne completely misjudged the seriousness of the situation in those late April days in Cologne. Yet something similar had happened upstream before, a few years ago. In Worms, a beautiful city in the southern Rhineland, and I know the name sounds funny in English, Worms, <laughs> the city population had also rebelled a year earlier, in 1073. There, the bishop of Worms, Adalbert II, had been successfully chased out of the city in 1073 after incurring the displeasure of the local population. As a result, Henry IV had taken the opportunity and placed the city under his direct protection and rule. Only 38 years later, when Henry IV died, Adalbert could return to his episcopal seat 
this Episcopal city of Worms. The people of Cologne were very aware of this incident since Worms was only a stone's throw away. The Cologne merchants in particular had certainly witnessed the events there on their trips to Worms and passed them on throughout Cologne. Lampert himself states that the mostly young rebels wanted to act according to the example of Worms. Quote, to this end, they remembered the much-vaunted glorious deed of the population of Worms, who, when their bishop behaved too wantonly, drove him out of the city, and as they were superior to these in number of people and even better equipped with money and arms, they considered it an insult to their honor to be thought less courageous and to let the archbishop, in womanish patience, so long rule over them with tyrannical arrogance. End quote. But not only that, the Cologne uprising did not just want to follow the example of Worms, no, Lampert accuses the insurgents of Cologne, and not entirely unjustifiably, of not only wanting to drive out the archbishop out of the city, no, they want to kill their hated city ruler. Still on the day of the beginning of the uprising, Anno had held a mass in the morning in front of the church of St. George and preached to the people. After all, April 23rd was the memorial day of St. George, so venerated by Anno himself. According to Lampert, Anno admonished the already rebellious people with the words, quote, The city has fallen into the power of the devil and will perish soon if they do not try to avert the wrath of God, which is already hovering over them, by repentance. After that, Anno continued his day as planned. In the meantime, however, the young merchant's son did everything to call more and more people to arms, because it was still outrageous about the double attempt to confiscate his father's ship. Anno, as said, ignored all this or failed to react in time. So Lampert reports that then, during a common dinner outside in the open, between the bishop's palace in the south and the cathedral in the north, today there's still the same square, he, so Anno, was downright not only disturbed, but almost lynched by the angry mob during the common dinner with the bishop of Münster. And, here you must bear with me, Lampert of Hersfeld. His full name reports here in such a beautiful way that I must quote it in full length. We had now almost 50 episodes, and how many times I have said, So we don't have enough historical written sources about it, but now we have, so we must exploit that. And of course, by beautifully written, I do not mean that I neglect the scientific approach of historical source criticism, but literally. It is really described in great detail, especially for an imperial chronicle which Lampert had in mind when he wrote down all these uh, sentences. With the lines for the year 1074, one could really think Lampert would have written it only for Cologne and not for the whole empire, but enough said, let's dive into the text when the mob attacks. Quote, in the afternoon, towards evening, when drunkenness, oil to the fire, was added to the rage, 
They rushed from all parts of the city to the archbishop's palace, and while he was dining with the bishop of Münster in a crowded square, they attacked him, hurling projectiles, throwing stones, killing some of the bishop's servants, and the rest, worn down by beatings and wounds, chased them away. Meanwhile, many have seen the stirrer of this fury, the devil himself, running along before the furious people, helmeted and armored, flashing terribly with a fiery sword and comparable to none but himself. And while he, by a trumpet call, urged the waverers to follow him into battle, in the midst of the attack, as he rushed forward, shouting loudly to blow up the gate bolts, he suddenly vanished from the sight of those following him. End quote. You see a pattern here, a clear pattern. The insurgents are devalued here, clearly, by Lampert, accusing them of being in league with the devil himself. The devil being present or not, that was the situation at that moment. Before we continue, we have to make sure again that we are all on the same page. How does it look like in the area where the mob attacks the bishop's palace and the cathedral, and of course the archbishop himself? At that time, the area around Cologne Cathedral was not open like it is nowadays. The area around Cologne Cathedral was actually like a kind of separate city within the city in the northeast corner of Cologne. To the east, where the Church of St. Maria at Grados, and then the Rhine itself as a barrier. To the south was the great Bishop's Palace, and today's street Am Hof, meaning in German, at the palace, still bears witness to the former location. Nowadays, the Archbishop resides very close to the Basilica of St. Gerion in a side street, but far off the Cologne Cathedral. Not very far away, just five minutes, but not <laughs> close to the Cologne Cathedral anymore. I was in there myself once in that nowadays bishop's palace. It was quite interesting, so to speak. To the west of the cathedral area stood in that time the administrative and residential buildings of the members of the cathedral chapter and the cathedral monastery. Above all, the houses of the cathedral provost and the cathedral dean. The first one was the administrator of the cathedral, and the, the latter, the dean, was responsible for the liturgy in the cathedral. All these houses in the west served as a boundary wall to today's Hohestrasse, the former north-south main street of Roman Cologne, and to the north, the area was also bordered. Next to the cathedral there, as a barrier, of course, stood the Roman city wall itself. I describe this so clearly because this is important for the further cause of this story. A corresponding sketch of the cathedral area from this time, for better illustration, I will upload uh, the coming days also on the homepage and on social media. Whether I will manage that in time for the publication day on Monday, I don't know yet. The weekend before the release of the episode, I'm on a weekend vacation in Hamburg and uh, I feed myself uh, full of fish sandwiches. That has to be done, so be patient. I will upload it in the coming days after the episode is released. Due to the location in the northeast corner of Cologne, we can therefore understand how the 
insurgents stormed the cathedral area, which was also the seat of the archbishop. They came both from the south and invaded the bishop's palace there. And of course, they came from the west when they had stormed the residential buildings there from the provost and the dean. With the city wall in the north as a barrier created by man and uh, in the east by nature with the Rhine, Anno was trapped. That was bad for him. The only thing he could do at the moment when he was surprised by the attack was to flee into the cathedral and hope that the thick stone walls and heavy entrance gates would hold until the rage of the mob cooled down or reinforcements arrived from outside. The report of Lampert also gives that because there are reports of course of the outrages which the insurgents undertook there as well as of the hasty escape of Arno into the cathedral, which really caught him unprepared. Lampert's report is written so extensively and in such detail that I prefer to quote it directly again instead of narrating everything here. Quote, The archbishop, with difficulty, his men were able to pull him out of the hostile pile and the cloud of bullets and bring him to the church of St. Peter the doors of which they secured not only by bolts and crossbeams, but also by large blocks rolled in front of them. Outside, like floods of water foaming over the banks, the devil's vessels rush and roar full of the wine of God's wrath, and running through the whole interior of the palace, they break down the doors, plunder the treasures, smash the wine casks, and by pouring out all too hastily the wines that had been piled up with great difficulty as supplies for a long time, they would have been threatened by the unexpected flood in the suddenly full cellar. One has to laugh, even as one tells it, almost drowned themselves. Others invade the chapel of the archbishop and plunder the altar, touch the sacred vessels with their stained hands, drag away the bishop's vestments. End quote. The fact that Lampert almost has to laugh here, as he himself really notes, at the attempt of some looters to ransack the wine cellar of the archbishop clearly shows on whose side the chronicler is here. But before we continue, a short break, please. With this description, we have reached the beginning of this episode. Anno, chased away by his own subjects, locked up in Cologne Cathedral, the mob hammering against the barricaded gate. That it was serious is shown by a scene that is said to have taken place on the edge of the siege of the cathedral. In the chapel, just mentioned by Lampert, and the chapel is a separate building outside of Cologne Cathedral, a clergyman was hiding in an alcove and obviously was shaken with fear when he was found by the mob. In a time without television, newspapers, photos or pictures on smartphones, perhaps not all insurgents were aware of what exactly Anno actually looked like. The looters raging here in the chapel probably thought this priest, this poor fellow was exactly that hated city lord and they lynched the poor guy. However, it quickly became clear that they had the wrong Anno here. But that didn't calm the mob at all. On the contrary, now it was clear. 
The archbishop was trapped in the cathedral. All they had to do was get in there, no matter the costs. Then they would finally be able to deal with Anno. It was only a question of time. But now, people, dear listener, now we come to the part of the story which I owe that many of you listening to this podcast at all right in this moment. It was a small, short video about the northern Roman city walls in the underground parking garage under Cologne Cathedral that, as of October 2022, has 80,000 views on Instagram and a whooping 620,000 views on TikTok, driving up my download rates ever since and putting me in the elusive Spotify charts for the first time. Well, but sorry, I digressed. Anno's salvation lay in that supposedly impenetrable barrier that the Romans once built, the northern Roman city wall. A member of the cathedral monastery who had his house right next to this northern city wall had a hole cut through the city wall only a few days before the uprising. Very, very small, but still big enough for a person to fit through. So the canon of the cathedral monastery did not have to take the whole detour to the main north-south city street, the Hohestrasse. No one except Anno and the canon living there knew about that little hole in the wall. Which is obvious, a hole in the city wall is a potential security risk. That was the solution for Anno. Because the insurgents, of course, did not know about this little hole, this passage there. Let's quote Lampert again. Quote, After the riot had dragged on until midnight, there was now eerie, impenetrable darkness everywhere, so that one could hardly make out the faces of people one encountered here. A narrow entrance led out of the church into the dormitory and from there into the forecourt and into a house of a cannon which was attached directly to the city wall. A few days before the outbreak of the outrage, the latter had received permission from the archbishop to break through the city wall and create a small backdoor for himself, so God had graciously arranged it to save the archbishop. There the archbishop was led out, and after four horses had been brought quickly for his escape and that of his companions, he rode away, protected in the best possible way by the darkness of the dark night from being recognized by those who met him. End quote. So, Anno had escaped. He rode with his retinue further and further north until he came to the neighboring town of Neuss. There he met his guest, the bishop from Münster, who had apparently been left unmolested by the insurgents. Neuss, the city you may remember from earlier episodes from the time from Cologne in this podcast, was at that time under the rule of the Archbishop of Cologne, both spiritually and secularly. Here in Neuss, Anno sought refuge and set his sights on revenge. In Cologne, on the other hand, it took quite a while before people even understood how things had developed. 
here people still believe that they had trapped the hated city ruler inside the cathedral. And one thing is really remarkable, how much the cathedral is sung about in Cologne songs nowadays, today. How we love the cathedral and oh, how much we like it and we do everything to protect it against all odds. That, for us, no matter where we were born here or moved here, no matter what we believe in or don't believe in, it is, the Cologne Cathedral is simply our landmark, yes, simply our home. But the people here in Cologne in 1074 didn't quite share that in those April days. In the meantime, they had proceeded to tear down the cathedral in some places with assembled battering rams. The remaining faithful of Anno inside the cathedral then um, used a little trick. They promised the besieged to find Anno and deliver him to them as soon as they found him inside. The main thing was to stop the attacks on the church. Thus Anno's followers gained enough time and of course Anno himself gained enough time to escape. Only when they were sure that Anno was safe in quite some distance to the city, they opened the gates of the cathedral and let the insurgents in. The rebellious Cologne people now also searched the cathedral, every single corner of it. But then they understood. Anno had escaped. Perhaps with a little too much satisfaction, the formerly besieged let it be known that Anno indeed had escaped and would return soon with a powerful force to punish all them rebels. This was perhaps not the wisest idea to do so by those who were currently still being trapped inside a cathedral, because in anger of the archbishop's escape, the mob hanged a man immediately above the cathedral gate because they were mad at him, but it is reported by Lampert that he was not really a bad guy. He was just a poor fellow who, who, who they, they picked and hanged above the door of Cologne Cathedral. A woman who had been suspected of sorcery before, the mob pushed down from the city wall and they simply left her body there in the ditch to, yeah, to, to be there. Already, if you believe here Lampert's report, the insurgents wanted to go to the Abbey of St. Pantaleon in order to also kill the monks there altogether. Here I had already mentioned, Anno had subjected the Form Benedictine Monastery to his stricter Siegburg Monastery form ideas and had finally installed completely new monks at this place as well as chased away the old Cologne inhabitants there. Thus, St. Pantaleon, once significantly promoted by Theophanu and Bruno, stood at this time as a symbol of Anno's hated city rule. But it never came to that. The monks there were spared. Nobody harmed them. Why? Well, the Cologne citizens uh, soon realized that there were other issues they now had to face. Let's listen to Lampert once again. Quote, When it was heard throughout the land and became generally known that the people of Cologne had driven their archbishop out of the city with shame and disgrace, all the people were appalled at this outrageous deed this outrageous crime, this spectacle of earthly degeneracy, that a man of such virtues in Christ could have suffered such egomony under the eyes of God. End quote. What Lampert writes here is really interesting. 
It's a testimony to the fact that this contrast of urban population versus rural population existed even back then in the 11th century. I find that really remarkable because even today, despite strong urbanization all over the world, these contrasts between urban population and rural population still exist. Lampert serves these cliches in a special way. On the one hand, the townspeople of Cologne, the sinners led by the devil himself, who in complete delusion and madness wanted to kill their archbishop. On the other hand, the law-abiding, pious and faithful people of the countryside, who immediately stood up for their archbishop and took up arms for him. From numerous places around Cologne, young men set out for Neuss to meet with the archbishop, and they were determined to really show these decadent Cologne people what they were made of. How that turns out? Well, take a look at, the, uh, at your podcast player. Best save that for next time. This episode was very focused on the events that took place in Cologne at the end of April in 1074. Almost everything we have covered here happened on April 23rd, 1074. We will find out how this confrontation between Anno and the people of Cologne would end in the next episode. Then we will also talk about other causes of the uprising. We haven't talked about all that yet. We have actually only followed the course of events so far, but we can't leave it with that. Where would we be here? The seizure of the merchant ship was, of course, the trigger of this conflict, but the causes and the backgrounds that were responsible for all that, we'll have to take a look at that next time. For the events in Cologne in April 1074 were, as already briefly touched upon, not an isolated case. This development towards a city population, or at least an economically well-off part of it, developing its own political interests seemingly out of nowhere, finding a united voice with political demands, was something that emerged particularly in Western Europe in the late 11th century, especially in France, Northern Italy and the Rhineland. In Western Europe, a change in the urban population was noticeable, a change that was much more profound than the chaotic and violent events in this episode are able to convey. The so-called communal movement was picking up steam in many urban places. What exactly this is, what this also has to do with the so-called investiture controversy, we will discuss in the next episode. However, the question is also justified to what extent this development towards a politically independently thinking and emancipated urban society of the simple, so non-aristocratic or non-clerical inhabitants already applies to Cologne for the year 1074 or how this uprising is already an example for that. Then we will also look at another aspect that significantly shaped the end of the 11th century. Part of this profound social development was the formation of a peace movement. Yes, you heard right, a peace movement that also found its followers in Cologne. 
the so-called Peace of God movement. But as I said, more about that in the next episode. It would take far too much time to touch on that here. So I look forward to hearing you again in three weeks when we will be talking about the people of Cologne in particular, in addition to the outcome of the uprising against Anno, how this will end at all, and quite normal people we will talk about. Nothing with kings, emperors or bishops, the people in this city who make up about 95% of the population. Because exactly in this time, after all this time, the population in the cities become much more tangible than just being an undefined measure of people. And as much as churches, buildings, economy, kings, emperors and bishops and so on shape Cologne, it is, however, above all the people who make up this city, who live here and have lived here for over 2,000 years. If you haven't done already, please subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app where you're listening right now. If possible, please rate this podcast in Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This really helps me so much that the algorithm of these podcast apps know that this is quite a good podcast uh, they should recommend to others. So please do it. It's just a small tap with your finger most of the times, especially on Spotify. And thanks as always to my patrons who throw one to five dollars uh, or euros, I have no idea actually, per episode into my hat so that I can buy nice things like a second microphone and an um, mobile recording device. I have no idea what the exact English word for that is. So now, possibly, I can do interviews, as already mentioned, I guess, in the last episode. But hey, that was quite an investment I had to do. And I'm really thankful that my Patreons paid like two-thirds of uh, the, the price for all that equipment. Thank you very much, really. It means the world to me. And of course, to all the others, thank you very much for listening. You really gave me the most precious thing you got time you gave me your time and i thank you for that that you used that time you got to listening to a podcast now i'm getting pathetic we should stop here it's already late at night on a thursday because on like i said on the weekend i'm on a little vacation trip and i have to record this podcast episode as fast as possible and of course i have to cut it and right now I have 90 minutes on the clock, so you can imagine how many times I mispronounced several words and messed up several sentences that I had to repeat and had to record again. Well, that's fun. Have fun editing Willem in the future with that. So thank you very much for listening again. Recommend me to others, as I already mentioned. And until then, auf Wiedersehen.